Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter 2. Well, the last few weeks we've been studying the songs of Christmas. In the first week, we looked at Zechariah's song that encouraged us to praise God for the promises found in his word. Last week, we looked at Mary's song of praise that taught us to give, that God gives joy to those who humbly believe his word. And then this week, we are going to study someone who's singing a solo and then a choir. What song do you think we're going to talk about today? That's right, the song of the angel and then of the full angelic choir. You can see the song of the angel, the solo, if you want to say that, in Luke 2, 10 through 12. And that's what we're going to look at this week. And then next week, we're going to study Luke 2, 14, the full angelic choir's message. And so the title of my sermon this week is An Angel's Solo Christmas Song. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Would you stand with me as I read God's word, Luke chapter 2? I grew up reading this out of the King James, so if I mess that up, it's because we read it every Christmas, and sometimes more than that, out of the King James. So, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. To her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory, <clears throat> the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you try to imagine with me the scene there of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12? Think about those shepherds out in that field at night. The field was probably around one or two miles away when we were in Israel back in May. We went to Bethlehem and saw some areas that those pastures might have been. So the Bible says that it was at night. So I want you to imagine that. It's the darkness of night. There's no lights around. All you can see are the stars in the sky. These shepherds would have pinned in their flock for the night. They would have slept around the fold to protect them from thieves and and predators. They would have slept on the, the cold, hard ground. So imagine these shepherds. They... They lived with their flock. They smelled like their flock. They were dirty. They were the lowest, really, caste of society. They were typically poor. Many of them were viewed as outcasts. They were unclean. But there they were out there in this field. It was night. I imagine it was quiet, except for maybe some of the flock. And then suddenly the darkness of night turned into brilliant light and a holy celestial being, an angel appeared before them. A lot of times pictures show an angel in the sky or whatever. The Bible doesn't say the angel was in the sky. It could have just been standing right before them. And so I don't know how you want to imagine it, but maybe imagine it that way. And the angel stood before them and it was like it went from darkness to boom, light. And the Bible says the glory of God shone around them. And I want you to think about the the shock that these shepherds would have gone through. These shepherds were men who would have heard the stories of the Old Testament. I mean, they knew what angels were. They'd never seen angels, but they knew the stories. They had heard the story probably of Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where there's a, a glorious angel cherubim that's guarding the, the, the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. They would have heard the stories of Moses when he was a shepherd and he saw a flaming bush and the angel of the Lord spoke to him from that. Those in Israel knew about the Ark of the Covenant. When it was built, it had two cherubim stretched over with their wings covering. And in the temple, there were, there were angels on the Pictures on the walls and on the curtain of the Lord. They would have known the story of Isaiah when he was in that vision in the heavenly temple. And all those angels on fire, the seraphim, were around the throne of God and they were crying out night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Angels are all throughout the Old Testament in Daniel, the books of history, the Psalms. And so I want you to imagine these men have heard about these things and right in front of them, they see an angel. 
And, and then eventually they see a multitude, probably millions of angels praising God. And so, rightfully so, when they saw that first angel, the Bible says they shook in great fear. They were afraid. But the angel right away let them know, fear not, verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I want you to look in verse 10. Look at those four words, I bring good news. As you might know, the the New Testament was written in Greek, and that's one Greek word. Those four words are one Greek word, euangelizo. Euangelizo. You can kind of hear that evangelical, you hear that good news. The, The idea is it means, I announce good news. So literally, you could read it like this. Don't fear, behold, and I imagine a dramatic pause, Good news, good news to you and joy for everyone. We like good news, don't we? I love to give good news. Isn't that kind of the joy, a little bit of, of Christmas morning with children? Is you love to give the, those kids the good news that they got what they asked for, or maybe something even better? That's, and especially if the good news is a, is a surprise. And that's what you see here. I mean, this is a surprise. They weren't expecting, when are those angels going to show up? It's like, what is this? Good news. Well, what's the good news? What does he say the good news is? Well, it's found in verse 11. Here is the good news the angel announced, and then all the angels glorified God in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So notice the good news was about a certain baby born in a certain place in Bethlehem, the city of David. That was the hometown of Israel's greatest king, David. Micah 5.2 prophesied that Israel's Messiah, Israel's coming king, would be born from Bethlehem. So that was significant there, the city of David, Bethlehem. But the good news about this baby is found in those three titles there. Notice the three titles in verse 11, Savior, Christ, and Lord. What I want to do this morning is study this angelic solo in the message of this good news. And there's probably many angles that a person could come to this text and teach and preach this text from. But what I want to do is I want to focus on the humility of this text. The humility and the exaltation of this one, this baby. I want to examine the good news. I want us to see that the good news of Luke chapter 2 Verses 10, 11, and 12 is this, and that is that that God humbled himself to save the humble. God humbled himself to save the humble. Now, we don't really think of humility as good news. Someone being humbled as good news. A few weeks ago, the news reported that a company called FTX 
cryptocurrency, it went under. And there were many people who lost money in that. The founder is right now sitting in a jail. That's bad news for those people. Right? They were humbled. They are being humbled. There's a humility in that. We don't think of humility as good news. But in our text, we're not talking about man's way. We're not talking about man's perspective. We're talking about God's perspective. And the Bible teaches that, that God, he brings down the proud. He humbles the proud and he exalts the lowly. And so here in our text, what we see is God's plan to save you. God's plan to save me was through the humility of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophecy was in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that the Messiah would be humble. I mean, think about this verse on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king. Here's your Messiah. He's coming to you. It's so exciting, righteous, and having salvation is he. What's the next word? Humble. Does that go together? See, we don't think that way as humans, do we? King, humble, humble king. We, we think that's an oxymoron. That seems like opposites. But that's not the case in God's economy. That's not the case in God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, humility is the path to God. Humility is the path to God. And God's plan for you and for me to be saved is down the road of Christ's humility. So the good news is that God humbled himself to save the humble. In fact, look at verse number 12. Verse number 12 has the sign. This is how they're going to know this is the one baby they're talking about or the angel is talking about. Verse number 12 has the sign for these shepherds. Verse 12, this sign is all about humility. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. So they're going to go to the city of David, go to Jerusalem, the city of the king, right? They're going to find a baby. Where? In a palace? No. Wrapped in silk? No. In the arms of a queen? No. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Swaddling clothes were, were narrow strips of cloth wrapped around an infant, and they were swaddled. The baby was swaddled. And so think about this. This baby is going to be swaddled, restricted. It can't, you can't move when you're swaddled as a baby, right? And he's going to be in a manger. That was a feeding trough for animals. This baby was going to be living in an animal stall, lying where animals once ate, held by a young teenage girl who had a baby by a supernatural work of God. But, but for years, many people would look on her in shame because they would see her as one who was accused of being unfaithful. And so this was a description of the humblest of human 
circumstances. This baby is helpless. This baby is in a poor family. And yet, go back to verse 11 and contrast that. This baby is Messiah. This baby is Lord. This baby is Savior. And so the good news is found really in those three titles. And so we're going to look at each one of those titles here this morning. And that is, first of all, we're going to look at the first way God humbled himself to save us. And that is, he is the Messiah who humbled himself by being born into a lowly, humble family. He, this baby, is the Messiah who humbled himself by being born into a humble family. Look at verse number 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Christ means Messiah. We celebrate, celebrate Christmas. It's, it's Messiah. It's the king. We're celebrating that a king was born. A king is a title of a person who conquers. It's a title of one who rules, who has ultimate power over his subjects. And I think we live just so distant from that, right? We don't live in a kingdom. We know of a king. What is it George, King George III? Is that what it is in England? But, but what, really, what do those kings and queen before him, what do they do all day? I mean, they drink tea and eat crumpets and say cheerio, you know, or whatever, but they're just figureheads, right? Do they have any real power, any real authority? And so I think we have a difficult time kind of, when we look at the word king or messiah, we go, oh yeah. But, but, but back at this time, in the, for the kings of old, when you were a king, it was because you were the most powerful, And if you weren't the most powerful, you didn't stay king for very much longer. So for most of Israel, when they were expecting this coming king, this coming Messiah, they were expecting one to be powerful, one that was going to dominate, one that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, one that was going to rule like Solomon and like David of old. I mean, here was a Messiah in their mind who was going to come in might and domination, The astonishing truth in this passage here is the Messiah actually came to conquer, yes, but through humility. Jesus even said of himself in Matthew 11, 29, learn from me. How did did he describe himself? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm humble in heart. Jesus is humble Jesus had a humble beginning. Jesus the Messiah was not born into a prominent family. He was born to a poor girl. And every part of Jesus' upbringing displayed his humility. In fact, look at verse 4, Luke 2, 4. You can see that Mary and Joseph came from Galilee. Galilee was like Hickville. It's like in America, it'd be like West Virginia. It, the Nazareth was a, was a nobody town. Like, where's Nazareth at again? And yes, he was born in the city of David and Bethlehem, but 
but he was born where animals slept. His crib was a feeding trough. And then look at Luke chapter 2, and notice how it starts off, and there's a contrast between this humble baby and who? Caesar Augustus, the exalted, dominant world leader who could tell people, go to your hometowns to be registered, to be taxed. And they did it. They had to. Why? He's the king. So notice the contrast. You have this human ruler who's the king, and you have this baby who is a king, and he's humble, he's lowly, he's poor. In fact, Mary, she recognizes this. Mary doesn't think like the world. Mary doesn't think like the powerful are the great ones. No, Mary knows how God thinks. And she, in her own song, she praises God that God exalts the humble. In fact, would you just turn back and look at that with me? Look at Luke 1.48. Luke 1.48. This is Mary's song. And she's speaking of herself. She sings this. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, speaking of herself. And then, if, then look down in verse 52, speaking of what God does. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So, so go back to Luke chapter 2. And friends, think about this. Mary, she recognized that God had put her in a humble position in life. And she rejoiced in that. Why is that? Because God exalts the humble. That's how God works. Do you know that God has placed you where you are at right now in life? And God has worked and is working in your life to put you in a place of humility. You might find yourself right now in a humble state. Maybe there's some type of sickness in your life that's restricting you. Maybe you have some kind of loss that's happened in your life that causes you sorrow. Maybe there's something you've hoped to achieve that you haven't been able to achieve yet. And you're asking yourself, why would God do this? Because, friend, God's great gift to us, it's the gift gift of humility. God calls us to be humble, and he knows how to position our lives in such a way that we will be humble before him and we will remain in a place of humility. Think about 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. The scripture commands us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In other words, God's hand's already on your life. He's doing something in your heart, in your life. And what does God, how does God want you to respond? Humble yourself under his hand so that he may at the proper time exalt you. God's mighty hand humbles us. He wants us to respond with humility. And, and what is humility? When we say the word humility, it's, it's not just thinking, it's not thinking low of yourself. It's not just thinking you're, Uh, a bad person. Humility is having 
a proper view of God and a proper view of yourself. So it's first having a proper view of God. Just think about this. Before we talk more about humility, think about that. Adam and Eve, when they were created, were created perfect, and they were created humble. In other words, they had a proper view of God and a proper view of themselves. What was their view of God? He's the holy one. He's the creator. He's the all-powerful one. He's the Lord. And what was their view of themselves? We We were created to glorify God. We were created to obey God. We were created to enjoy God. That's humility. And when they sinned against God, they decided instead to have humility, to have pride. And they exalted their, in their own hearts, they exalted themselves above God. They didn't have a proper view of God and they didn't have a proper view of themselves. And so God brought them low. He cursed them. What's the purpose of the curse? Well, there's a number of purposes, but one is to humble us, to humble them. It's to crush our pride. It's to disassemble the altar of self. And see, the pain and the trials of this life, God uses those to humble us so we can see our our sin, so we can see our selfishness, so we can walk the path of humility and repentance and faith. So so God can change our perspective on who he is and, frankly, on who we truly are. And as ones who have sinned against God, a proper view of God is that he's the holy one, that he's the just one, that, that we deserve, therefore, because we have sinned against him to be punished for our sin. So a proper view of ourselves is that we've sinned against him, we're condemned. That's a proper view of God, that's humility. And so, friend, God invites us to walk the path of humility and confess that's true. Confess, God, you're the holy, righteous one, and I'm not. And then, in faith, to trust that Jesus Christ is the one who has paid the penalty for our sin, and he's the one who can save us. Augustine was asked once, what's the first step to heaven? And his response was humility. And the person asked him, well, what's the second step to heaven? And he said, well, it's humility. They said, well, what's the third step to heaven? And guess what he said? Humility. God's path to heaven was paved by Jesus, and he paved it with his own shed blood. It's one of humility. So Mary praised God here. In in chapter 1, she praised God that she was humbled by God and then exalted. And Jesus is the Messiah who humbled himself by being born into a lowly family. And you ever wondered why? why? Why did that need to happen? Why did it need to happen that Jesus was born to such a humble, in such a humble way, in a humble estate. Well, one of the reasons is, is that he had to be like us to be able to save us. One of the passages I love about this is Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is our high priest, and it's not like he's some distant person who doesn't know what we struggle with. No, 
we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. You see, friend, because Jesus Christ came to this earth and he was born in the lowliest of states, he is able to relate to every one of us. He can relate to the poor beggar boy in Uganda, to the rejected orphan in North Korea, and he can relate to you. And so he is the Messiah who humbled himself by being born into a lowly family. And he is the Lord God who humbled himself by taking on human flesh. Look down in verse 11. This is remarkable. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the, what's the last word there? Lord. Now that last word should shock you. This baby is the Lord. And what did the angel mean by that word, Lord? Well, the gospel of Luke has used that word, Lord, 19 times up until Luke 2.11. So, so the gospel of Luke has used that word 19 times up until Luke 2.11. And every time... It refers to God. It refers to the Old Testament Hebrew word for God. That's Yahweh. Is that significant? If it's used that way throughout these two chapters up until really not even into chapter two, just the beginning of it, should we take note of that? In the Old Testament, God revealed his name to be Yahweh. And if you look in your Old Testament translation, English translation, Many translations, uh, it's translated as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So all caps, Lord. That's the name Yahweh in Hebrew. In the New Testament, the Greek word is often translated, I'm sorry, the Greek word used is often kurios, which means master. And let me be clear about this. It's not always referring to Yahweh, Lord. Sometimes it's to a person who's a master. But many times it actually does refer to God's name. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it refers to God's name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. And you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know if I believe you. Well, let's look at some verses that show this to you. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 6. We're not going to look through all 19 verses, okay, if you're nervous about that. But I want you to see that this, is, this word, Lord, is referring to God himself. Luke 1, 6. And I'm not going to read the whole verse. Just look at the part I'm talking about. The very end speaks of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's clearly Yahweh God, right? How about verse 11? There's a reference to the temple of the Lord. That's Yahweh God. Verse 16 speaks of the Lord, Yahweh their God. I mean, that's as clear as it possibly can be right there. How about verse 28, when the angel says, the Lord is with you. How about verse 45? The word was spoken to her from the Lord. How about verse 46? Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. We could do that 10 more times in chapter one, but look down in chapter two, 
And look at verse 9. And here in chapter 2, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in the glory of the Lord. So there you see, that's clearly Yahweh God. And the next time that term is used, that word is used, is in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, where the Bible says, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you get what this angel is saying? This baby is God. I mean, shouldn't that shock you? You have a baby who's swaddled. The baby can't even move. The baby can't feed himself. And yet this angel is saying he's the Lord? He's God? And friends, what is this here? This is what we call the incarnation. This is the announcement that God has come in the flesh. This is God of eternity, past and present and future, remaining truly God, but also becoming truly human. The word incarnation, in flesh, is what it means. Incarnation, in flesh. It's a theological word that describes that the eternal Son of God, that's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, put on our flesh and blood and became also fully human. The incarnation is so important. It's an important doctrine. It's a necessary doctrine because it is the only way a person can be saved. God provided salvation through Jesus, the God-man. In church, there is no Christian, there is no Christmas if God didn't take on human flesh. Think about that. There's no Christmas if God didn't take on human flesh. Religions, people all over the world celebrate Christmas. But if you don't believe the scripture that Jesus is God, you can't truly appreciate Christmas. You can't really enjoy Christmas. Right, you might see on TV or on the computer, you see the Mormon tabernacle and they're singing those songs. And do you know, they can't really taste the joy of Christmas because they don't believe who Jesus, the Bible says who Jesus is. And so friends, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he's God in your heart and life, you've trusted in him, you can truly taste of what Christmas it's supposed to be about God humbled himself to save the humble. In order for us to be saved, we needed a savior who could be like us, truly human, but also a savior who is truly God. As truly man, he lived a holy life that we have not lived and we cannot live. As man, he obeyed the law of God perfectly. Every command in the Old Testament, he was to obey, he obeyed it in thought, in word, and in deed. As man, Jesus is the righteous seed who can save. As man, Jesus could suffer and die in our place. 
as truly God, Jesus was able to take the weight of hell upon himself. He was able to gain victory over sin and death. As the eternal God, he paid for your eternal punishment through his suffering and his death. And as God, he could gain victory over death and res- through resurrection. He is the God-man. And as the God-man, he is able to save those who come to him in faith. There's a story of a man who heard the gospel and he was considering the gospel, but he thought about a lot of other religions and thought, you know, I just don't know if, if the gospel is superior to these other religions. I don't know if Christ and his work is superior. It just seems like there's a bunch of religions and there's Christianity as well. And so one day he was thinking about the gospel and he was thinking about life and he started to imagine himself walking and he imagined this pit and he imagined himself falling into this pit and there he lay and as he kind of daydreamed he he lay in this pit in his mind and he was at the bottom in despair and as he looked up in this pit he he started seeing religious leaders walk by and, and first he saw Allah Allah walked by and Allah looked down at him and says you deserve to be in that pit. Confucius then came by and Confucius says, let, let me give you some advice while you're down in that pit. If you ever get out of this, don't fall back in it. Buddha came by and advised him and said to him, if, if you rid yourself of your desires from being in that pit, you can stop your suffering down there. The Pope came by and he said to him, if you Meet me halfway, the church can save you. The agnostic said, how do you even know you're in that pit down there? The moralist and the Mormon said, try to climb up yourself and do it in the name of Jesus. But then the man saw himself still hopeless at the bottom of that pit. And then there was one that came climbing down, and it was Jesus. And he climbed down. He lifted that man on his back and he carried him out. And that man stopped daydreaming and he realized the only one who came down to save him was Jesus Christ. He's the only one, my friend, that truly can save. He is God and man. And he is able and he is willing to save who come to him by faith. And then last of all, He is the only Savior who humbled himself to save us through his atoning death. Look at verse 11. This is the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Friend, do you know why our world needed a Christmas? It's because our world needed a Savior. Every movie this time of year is is trying to save Christmas. You ever notice that? It's kind of annoying. You pretty much know the plot of every movie. It's pretty much going to be, you know, Christmas is in jeopardy. You know, someone's going to save Christmas. Well, we don't need to save Christmas. Literally, Christmas started to save us. Isn't it interesting how the world flips that back around? Like, we're going to save Christmas. 
when actually the, the original purpose of Christmas is to save us? Jesus is our Savior. Even his name means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. We need a Savior. What do we need a Savior to save us from? Maybe the politics of our country. Maybe from viruses. Maybe from bad people. Well, eventually all those things will things Christ will overturn. But friend, the truth is he came not to save us from those things. He came to save us from our sins. He came to save you from your sins. Christmas exists because sin exists. Let that sink in. Christmas exists because sin exists. And as you think about Christmas, it's important for you and for me to think about our own sin. Think about our lies. Think about our theft. Think about our complaining. Think about our evil thoughts. Think about our broken promises. Think about our sin against God, against other people. And then remember that Christmas exists exists because of those sins. But also remember, Jesus Christ came to save us from those sins. The good news is that God humbled himself to save the humble. One of the most precious passages in scripture about this is Philippians chapter 2, which describes the humility of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, he is God, he did not count equality with God, that's the Father, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God humbled himself by becoming man and went even lower. He suffered and he died in our place. Why did he do all that? To save us from our sins. And Peter preached, Peter preached in Acts chapter 5, verse 30 through 31, the humility and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He looked at those people who actually took Jesus and condemned him to death, killed Jesus, and he said this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In other words, you humiliated him, but here's what God did. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And he gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the purpose of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation is so he could forgive our sins. And friends, this is the good news of Christmas. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is God. Jesus is the King. And the good news is that God humbled himself to save the humble. God's path to him is through the humility of the Son of God. Christ came in humility, was exalted in victory, and we are to come to God in humility. So how do we, how do we apply Luke chapter 2, verse 
11. First of all, we need to believe. We need to believe that Jesus is God who humbled himself to save us. Jesus came to save you. Do you believe that right there? If you don't know Christ, if you don't believe that, this is the truth, friends. This is the truth. That angel stood there or was up there and announced, here's the good news. Friend, all of us have bad news, and that is that our sin condemns us. And Jesus is the good news that he came to save us. And second way we can apply this is to humble ourselves before God. If you truly know God, if you truly understand who he is, if you have an accurate view of God, you will have an accurate view of yourself. That's humility. And God calls us to be humble. In fact, just look with me real quick over in Luke chapter 3. I just want to show you this. Because what's interesting is these angels announce good news. In Luke 3, do you know John the Baptist when he preached? He preached good news. In Luke chapter 3, verse 18, it says that John the Baptist preached the good news to the people. Do you realize what that good news was? The good news started in verse 8 when he talked to Pharisees and he said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. The good news started in verse 13 when he talked to tax collectors and said, you guys are cheating people. The good news started in verse 14 when he told soldiers that you guys aren't content with your wages. And then the good news concluded when he said, and there's one that's coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And who is that one? That was Jesus. And he's saying, we should humble ourselves under this one because he's the one who can save us. And, and then again in Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, Jesus says, I'm the one who preaches good news. And do you realize in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, who he's preaching good news to? It's the humble. And so friends, here's the point. God calls us to humble ourselves under Jesus, confessing we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. So the question for you is, have you humbled yourself under the Lord? Are you humble before the Lord? The good news is that God humbled himself to save the humble. And third, Christian, Christ wants us to have this mindset every day. We are to have the mindset of humility. That means we are to humble ourselves under God, but we're also to humble ourselves in the midst of others. And what does it mean to be humble before God? What's a proper view of God and a proper view of self? And here's the thing. If you are a Christian, what is your view of God and what is your view of self? Well, your view of God is he's the Savior, right? He's the one who has forgiven you. And so what's your view of yourself? I'm a child of God. I'm not under condemnation. Like actually true humility before God as a Christian is recognizing who are you in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm loved by God. Is that pride? Absolutely not. It's humility because I didn't do anything to get that. It's all by his grace. Thank you, Jesus. Humility before God means that we respond in praise. We're so thankful for what he's done for us. We, we petition him because we know he's the one who, can, who is in charge of all things. Humility also means that we put other people before ourselves. That means we operate on a daily basis with a mindset that says we want to exalt God 
and we want to value and love other people. That means we have humility in our homes. Children, that means that you operate in a way in your home that's humble. That means you honor your parents, even if you think you're right. It means that spouses, we have humble marriages. Spouses, what does humility look like in your marriage? It means that we are humbly serving one another as a church. And, and not just indeed, but actually your heart genuinely is humble to say, I, I want to love these people and not expect anything in return. I read this book yesterday as I was thinking about humility. If you want to get a Christmas present for someone, that might be a good idea. It's called Humble, Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. And let me end with a quote from this. This book encourages us to think about God's work in our life to humble us, the great work of humility in our life. Listen to this. The main test and opportunity comes when we are confronted, unsettled, and accosted. In the moments when our semblances of control vanish, we are taken off guard by the hard edges of life in a fallen world. The question comes to us, how will you respond to these humbling circumstances? Will you humble yourself before God?